Welcome everybody to Museum Sun Chill, uh, a podcast where we talk everything museums. This is Alexandra from the International Council of Museums, and we are here today with Kate Wagner, creator of the blog McMansion Hell, a blog that roasts the world's ugliest houses from top to bottom while teaching about architecture and design. So we're going to talk about architecture and design in museums. Hi, Kate. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm all good. I'm very excited. Uh, so for those who are not acquainted with the concept of a McMansion. What is a McMansion? Yeah, so essentially a McMansion is what I would call a typology of architecture uh, that uh, I am personally very fascinated with. Um, it exists uh, within this line between uh, what we call in architecture vernacular housing. So housing that is built by developers that isn't necessarily designed by architects. Um, and actually, you know, custom building, which has historically been the focus of architectural history and theory for, you know, basically its entire existence. Uh, and so McMansions are a little funny because sometimes architects aren't involved, but, you know, custom builders are. And essentially, they're these really huge, oversized American houses that are made out of kind of cheap materials where the point of the house is to communicate through various architectural signifiers, big columns, big porticos, uh, such, such things kind of borrowed from banks or the mall or other, other places where there's grand architecture. And they all are kind of cobbled together in this Frankenstein, these Frankenstein houses that are really just ostentatious uh, displays of wealth. And so I guess that's the briefest definition I can give, but it's very it's much a, a kind of American phenomenon, though it's been exported now to, to more to more countries in the world. Right. And before um, going into what would be a Mac museum in that sense, maybe we can talk a little bit about um, how space shapes our experience. In the end, as humans, we spend so most of our time inside of buildings. So in general, what makes a good space? That's a really hard question. Um, when I was in graduate school, I studied architectural acoustics. So I actually focused a lot on the non-visual side of buildings. Um, so I think that a building and a good space is a completely all sensory experience, not just a sort of visual or, or vague spatial experience. And so for me, if I if I think about what makes it a good space, it's one that, first of all, is is inviting. And that doesn't necessarily have as much to do with architecture as it does with people. Um, and second, I think a good space is, is well organized uh, for in terms of circulation, in terms of how it's put together for resiliency, for uh, aesthetics. There's a certain compositional guide that has been established in and then later is usurped in architecture for you know its entire existence and i mean ultimately though i think some architecture is very a very individual kind of taste some people really like buildings that i really don't like for example um and so i'm always quite interested actually in in encouraging the critic in everybody which is kind of a mcmansion hell project and to really get an idea of of what makes um other people think that that spaces are good because we follow these these architectural rules of proportion of of these kinds of transitions between vast and small spaces that create this dramatic effect, which is very often used in museums, for example, in Atria and all these other things. But what uh, what other people see is, you know, sometimes very basic, like, is it falling apart? Is it ugly? Is it how is it put together? Um, 
where was it built and by whom and for what purpose, which are also, you know, a space is only as good as sort of the people behind it. For example, Lincoln Center in, in New York, which is, a, is, you know, now considered a hallmark of modernism and they just redid it into David Geffen Hall. But it was like built on the back of mass displacement in, in the city and urban renewal and the destruction of, of neighborhoods. So it's a really complex question that straddles politics, aesthetics, and, you know, a little bit of science, I think. Um, so it's, it's hard to give a short answer to that. Right. And you've just mentioned a couple of aspects that are very, um, could be very specific about the visit the experience of a museum visitor, you mentioned the circulation, the aesthetics. So um, how, to what extent do you think space can shape the experience of a museum goer when they go to the museum? I think it shapes it a lot, actually. If I could just compare in America to museums, um, one is the MoMA in New York, which is, you know, one of the premier institutions of modern art in the world. But when you go into the MoMA, right, through any sort of any of its entrances, you are basically immediately thrust into these just uh, kind of wall of escalators. It really feels more like a mall for consuming art than, uh, than a museum. And every movement is, the circulation is, is very much the, the core of, of the MoMA. It's moving as many people through the museum as possible because they have a huge amount of visitors. Um, and a relatively small footprint, actually, compared to, for example, the Met, which sprawls forever and ever and ever. Um, but if you compare the, um, the MoMA with, for example, our local museum is the Art Institute of Chicago, uh, which I go to a lot. Um, in fact, I'm about to purchase memberships for my husband's and mine anniversary because we go quite often. But if you go, if you enter, um, from the, uh, from the wing that faces uh, with the lions, which is the old wing. The modern wing is a, is a definitely more MoMA experience, I think. It's just a big atrium. But the, in this wing, you are greeted with these pairs of stairs. And one stair goes downstairs, and then the other goes upstairs. And the whole museum kind of fans out from there. And it's actually quite hard to navigate from that entrance. But at the same time, that also just kind of encourages exploration. Um, for us... We've been to the Art Institute several times and we've never seen all of it just because you can get lost. <laughs> and I think that's part of the charm, actually, of it is, is the, and it met also the scale of it. And, you know, it's, it leads you on a journey that maybe you didn't think you were going to take. And now, is that very efficient in terms of getting people where they need to or want to go? Probably not, which is why most of the, the traveling exhibitions are through the modern wing, which is very straightforward. Uh, but it also is part of the, the museum experience to, to kind of be swept away from, from the world a little bit, to be uh, kind of enveloped in this building that just goes wherever and meanders wherever it's going to go. And I think e both have equal, equally good points uh, in terms of how, how a functioning museum works. And then, of course, the curation is a big deal, like how things are hung on the wall, whether or not there's audiovisual content and, and, or other kinds of content, tactile content, compared to just paintings how their paintings are curated. Uh, it really, there's so many factors and museums are one of the rare uh, building typologies where the interiors change all the time. Um, the only other kind of buildings that are like that for in terms of public buildings are, uh, you know, the mall or the, or shopping centers that change with the seasons. Uh, and so it's, you have to also create that recurring interest. Uh, there's just so many factors at once. 
Um, and so you can understand a little bit why the MoMA has people, you know, just going through these escalators, just kind of circulating because it makes it very easy for them to, to manage all of the visitors and keep things really kind of turned around easily. And it's like a kind of moving parts that are inserted in whatnot, whereas you're working with a more solid, weird building like the Art Institute, it's completely different. That's so interesting that you mentioned that it's so dynamic inside because a lot of the times when we think about um, museums, uh, you will think about these museums being housed in a historical house uh, that might be a little bit less flexible. Um, mm -hmm. But I liked what you mentioned about uh, the sense of exploration. Uh, so ICOM is based in Paris and I've been many times to the Louvre and it feels a little bit that way. You never know where you're going to end up and it's a little bit like going in an adventure or something. Yeah, definitely. And also in contrast, again, to the Centre uh, Pompidou, which is you enter like a big, vast space and there's escalators. Exactly. So, yes, so. yes. That's a great parallel as well. Um, so now that we have sort of established what will be a great space, um, in your opinion, ex expert of Mac Mansions, what will be a Mac Museum? <laughs> this is quite a funny uh, question because there are, I think, many answers to it. One is that uh, a very over-budget, over-produced kind of building that's kind of chasing after this Bill Bow effect that we'll talk about later, that cities see where they think that if they put in a big showy museum, they're going to end up you know, generating lots of interest and revenue and tourism and that this is a direct one-to-one -one exchange. Uh, and, you know, I don't know if that's necessarily proven by science, uh, but the, like, for example, um, what they did to the LACMA in, in, um, LA where they had, uh, Tom, uh, they had, um, what was his name? Peter Zumthor, who is a very talented architect at medium scales, small and medium scales. Like he's known for these atmospheric projects, like spas and stuff and, and things like this. And they got him to, to do the renovation and it was, it's kind of a train wreck. They had to, they ended up cutting out a lot of the collection. It was, it was over budget. They, I mean, it was just every, it kind of resembled one of those Italian uh, highway road stops that go over the, the road because it straddles the road. I mean, it was my first ever column as a print architecture critic was about this, this museum. And it basically for me in, encapsulated everything that goes wrong when you are looking at a museum not as a uh, you know a house for culture or a public good, but for a way of, of generating revenue. And so, if we look at the sorry, my dog's barking. Uh, if we look at the um, the McMansion and why it's built, right, uh, which is is again to communicate this kind of wealth and and to inspire the kind of curiosity. Ooh, what kind of life do they live? You know, what is their crib like? I I think a Mick museum is is probably along similar lines. It's just built kind of in the spirit of money. And, but the other option is, is some, some for example, right now, um, they're trying to get rid of the Venturi uh, addition to, uh, what was it, the Sainsbury Wing, I think. I'll have to double check on that. So don't quote me on that, but the, there's, um, I'm still early in the morning, but you know, when they have something that is historically, um, beloved, right? Or like the Royal Museum in, in Toronto, uh, where with, with Daniel Leviskin with his giant diamond poking out of this historic building that people just hate. They hate this. I mean, I actually think it's kind of fine. 
uh, but they really hate this that you know when when architects just kind of cannibalize an existing building with their funny business people really come email me all the time like this is a mick museum what do you think of the the what we, what's the actual name it just seems that it doesn't um a little bit like the mcmansions that don't really take into consideration the people who live in it and yes i guess the landscape that they're implanted in and mm -hmm. you mentioned right before the Bilbao effect. And mm -hmm. that was something that we had in mind when we thought about inviting you to the podcast and asking you about a Mark Museum. Um, because there is, a, I guess that one of the main um, topics of conversation when we talk about museums and architecture is this Bilbao effect. What is it? Does it work? Um, several museums that we, we might be debating, is this? Uh, are they really trying to do the Bilbao effect? Uh, and star architecture. So I'd like to have a little bit of your opinion about star architecture, the Bilbao effect. Does it work? Does it not? And why? That's a very interesting question. Um, the So also the Royal Ontario Museum in, in Toronto. It's like, yes, I know there's a middle word in there. Yes. Uh, uh, it's interesting because I feel like the Bilbao effect is a very late 20th century, early 21st century development. I mean, you were talking about Bilbao, which was a industrial city re in reality that was becoming deindustrialized and a little bit economically depressed. And so they, the the powers that be in Bilbao were looking towards um, culture as a way of revitalizing the city. And so they hired Frank Gehry, who is a very famous American architect, known for these explosive deconstructivist buildings, uh, to, to design the new Guggenheim in Bilbao which he did, and it became kind of an instant landmark. Um, it's one of his best buildings by far. It's one of his most iconic buildings, uh, and it got him as well a lot of work uh, in, in, public, in public projects or, and cultural projects. And so a lot of other cities saw, around the world saw this effect that's like, wow, people are now going to the waterfront in Bilbao, which was really an industrial wasteland. And they're spending their time there, and we want to do that with our with our you know city, and so you ended up with a lot of um, cities coming and and asking like big big architects, big star architects to come in and and build and build museums, and some of these museums are of course better than others, and it's it's quite interesting. So whether or not it works. Um, in terms of economic revenue, a lot of these projects are end up extremely bloated, extremely over budget, and they ended up being funded with public funds. And so people get mad about it. They don't want their taxes being spent on something they see as this kind of big folly. Uh, you see this also with concert halls, which is what I primarily study it, like the uh, Elf for Harmony in, in Hamburg, people got really mad about their their tax money essentially going to this overblown architect project. Uh, and this is quite a common, co common sentiment. Um, and then also there's some touchy subjects regarding land use, who, who is going to get pushed out by the, by the, um, increased spending in, in culture, cultural areas. It's all very political. Um, and so in some cases, yeah, like it works for Bill Bow. It's not necessarily going, going to work for, for everyone. Um, and a lot of the projects also have had problems. For example, all of these museums that were done by Santiago Calatrava, who is quite famous, they all leak. <laughs> or they have so, they were so over budget, they all leak. It's just become kind of a meme in architecture. And 
or the LACMA, which is just a complete and utter failure. And it shows that sometimes, you know, architects, when they are given these huge budgets, right, when they are given this total control, sometimes I think they get a little drunk on it and a little silly. And, and yeah, the projects are not necessarily as good as they would be if they were, you know, smaller in scale. Um, and architecturally, I mean, a lot of the times, um, architects who are more talented working at smaller scales, when they scale up to a, a project like a museum, they really struggle. Um, and so to answer your question, uh, I would be very cautious against the, the, the idea that the Bill Bow effect works because a lot of the times, no offense to museums, that public money is best used in things is maybe better used in, I don't know, housing or, or, you know, infrastructure, uh, instead of or maybe uh, actual of, museum program exactly yeah they build the building and then it's and then what do they do with it you know this is this is a classic problem they 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 spend all their money on the building they don't know what to do with it after uh so instead of just like they just created a bobble for people to take photos of and it's when you actually look at it like that it seems kind of pathetic uh so I'm in my in my criticism, uh, especially when I was working as a columnist, I'm freelance now. Uh, a lot of the time, these were the kinds of projects that I targeted because you know if you looked at inequality in some of these cities, uh, it just seems extremely kind of not nice. Let's say to spend all this money on a very very expensive multi million dollar tens of millions of dollars, if not hundreds of millions of dollars building, uh, then while there are just, you know, homeless people everywhere in LA, uh, and there's no supportive housing, there's no, we're not dealing with that problem, we're going to try and get cultural people to come to LACMA, which is just a case of misplaced priorities. And that's not LACMA's fault, necessarily, that's not necessarily the museum's fault, though, I mean, they were also involved in why this project was such a mess. But I mean, when you're looking at it from a critical perspective, you take into consideration also the politics, also the bigger urban picture. So it's not such a black and white answer. I guess there's no denying that culture does play a role in urban regeneration in general, and it can revitalize some urban areas. But I guess that when the project is misdirected or the efforts or the funds are misdirected and perhaps there's no enough involvement of the community that these projects are going to be for, um those are a lot of elements for a recipe for failure um but it is still interesting to take into consideration um this entire debate about urban regeneration and architecture so moving now to some rapid fire questions um mm -hmm. i want to ask you so we've talked about mark museums but as an architect i want to ask you which is your favorite museum from the architectural point of view I'm actually not an architect. I'm an architecture critic. Um, but the for me, the my favorite museum actually, and this is very controversial, is the Santra Pompidou um, because I am very personally interested in in my both my academic work and also in my public work as McMansion Howe in in things that are considered failures or things that are very controversial. And so for me, the Sandra Pompidou represents this extremely important turning point in, in late modernism that was right before the beginning of postmodernism, 
where the logic of, of the formal logic of modernism had progressed to such a point that we were using services, right? So uh, circulation of, of electricity, of plumbing, of, all of the scaffolding, the, the actual guts of the building as ornament. And this was a very interesting line of modernist thinking that exalts these kinds of functional elements of the building to such a point that they become themselves the form. This was really like a formal and logic of of the modernist doctrine of form follows function. And in fact, in the Centre Pompidou, it's more like function follows form because they always have tons of problems with it. It's all now under renovation. But I also think it's an incredible building. I mean, it is one of just aesthetically one of my favorite buildings. I love how freaky it is. Have you visited uh, it? I love, yeah, many times. I love the, every time I go to Paris, I visited it. I visit it and I love all that Technicolor um, pipes and uh, this kind of thing that just looms out of the city like an oil refinery. <laughs> it's so in, in, in so dramatic. This this second question, I'll adapt it then to uh, your favorite museum. The question is uh, a song to listen while in a museum. So specifically a song to listen to while you're wandering around the Centre Pompidou. Actually, yeah, I don't spend a lot of time listening to music while I'm just walking, except for maybe walking the dog, uh, walking around uh, because... Uh, I don't know, maybe it's because I, I originally was trained as a classical music and musician and sitting around and listening to music was like a dedicated activity. But I would say probably something like Steve Reich music for 18 musicians or Philip Glass or some other kind of, you know, minimalist music. Uh, I find very uh, soothing or not soothing um, appropriate for walking around museums. That actually sounds like a great selection to walk around and get lost uh, in a museum. Yes. And I get the last question will be, so what exhibition are you dying to see? Wow, that's a great question. Oh, man. Yeah, the MoMA had this exhibition of Italian radical design back in the day. And I have the catalog for that, which was just the coolest stuff ever. Uh, they had these um, just incredible spreads from these weird Italian late modern, like hyper modern and post early postmodern designers. Uh, and, you know, this was at the dawn of the Memphis Milano movement in, in postmodernism, and they had just these extremely slick, sexy pieces of furniture that are so bespoke that you cannot find them anywhere. In fact, they are even very hard to find in museums. Uh, and I would, that, I would kill to see that in, in the flesh. Um, they also had all these things from Super Studio, which is a uh, you know radical Italian design movement that was kind of making fun of hyper capitalist landscapes, uh, and just I would love to see that. Uh, and in terms of like existing existing ones, uh, the probably there's a David Hockney one going on at uh, um, the Art Institute, and I'd be interested in checking out what he's up to. Uh, uh, these days uh, we'll hope for that radical um, Italian yeah. exhibition in Pompidou ideally uh, so we'll we'll be manifesting that for you <laughs> well thank you so much Kate uh, for joining us today and uh, this was Museum Sun Chill a new episode available every second Friday of the month thank you so much Kate thank you